Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you haven't ordered your copy of Peter Hart's new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, now is the time to do it. The Gallipoli Evacuation was one of the most important chapters of the entire Gallipoli story, and this is the first book to explore it in detail. From dithering politicians in London, to the winter storms, to the ingenious ruse that enabled the Allies to escape, such as the self-firing rifles and the silent periods, this book tells the whole gripping story of this life and death gamble. And Peter Hart really is the man to tell this story with his wonderful writing style, his insightful accounts of the history, and most importantly, his use of quotes from veterans of the campaign. The story of the Gallipoli evacuation is really told in the words of the men who were there. The book is now available in softcover or ebook, and you can order it all over the world and pay in your local currency. So visit our website, livinghistorytv.com, to order your copy today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and I've got good news for you. What is that good news, Gary? What is it? Tell us what the good news is. Well, I don't know, Peter, so perhaps you could help. I believe it's something to do with the amount of downloads. It is. We've got over 100,000 downloads, and that's all down to you. You have helped bring us to this this peak in our lives. Uh, we're, we're standing atop a mountain of, 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 of happiness. A mountain of happiness. I'll tell you what is good. We've made lots of new friends out of this, Pete. We have made lots of new friends. I mean, I mean you, you were talking to me about the ones you'd made. I mean... I'd made three, and one of them's a spare. Well, that's that, that and, and you only had one friend before, and that wasn't me. Yeah, uh, I did. But it is really, really, really good news. 100,000 downloads, and it is thanks to, to all of you, and we're just very grateful because you are making this a huge success. Yeah, because there's no point doing it if, if people don't join in. And, and one thing is that we'd like people to, uh, if, you, if you have ideas for a podcast, then, then let us know, because this is, this is something we, we hope to do together. Uh, and uh, we might not always be able to do them, because we don't know anything about the subject you suggest. But we'll try, won't we, Gary? 
Well, yeah, there is a risk that you'll just say bugger off, but uh, I'll be really interested. (laughs) So please send in your your suggestions, either by Facebook or uh, if if you can through Twitter, and and we'll, we'll have a look and we'll let you know what we can do. Or you could ring Gary's personal phone number, which I'm about to tell you. <laughs> Just hang on, I'll look at my phone and get... Oh, no, perhaps not. Now, what we do today, Gary, we've had all that good news. We've shared our, our love of the listeners. What, 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 what next? Well, today we're looking at uh, Haig, but young Haig. So he's very early No, no, early no, life. Gary. Gary, he wasn't ever young. He was born as a grumpy old bad-tempered field marshal. He was always that age. Uh Good-looking, grumpy, old, bad tempered Well, that's going to be a theme throughout this podcast, isn't it? Uh, so, 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 when was he born? Uh, you, you know when he was born. Uh, he was born nineteenth June, eighteen sixty-one, in Charlotte Square, Edinburgh. And I stayed in Charlotte Square. There's a there's a plaque on the house, uh, as you would expect, a, a blue plaque. It's a very pretty little square just off Prince's Street in Edinburgh. And uh, 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 we, myself and uh, uh, a noted Hague historian, George Webster, actually had a, a plaque put up in the bar uh, below where, where we, we, I'm afraid, drank rather much, too much to celebrate the whole occasion. And you can see that picture of me and George looking gormless and celebrating Hague's birthplace. Now, who, who is he the son of? He's the son of John and Rachel Haig. Um, she, nee Veitch, which was a border family, which was of similar status to, to the Hagues, but unlike the Hagues, was skint, frankly. <laughs> so they had all the social standing you could desire, but none of the money. Now, the, the, so the Hague family, they're descended from a Norman knight. Ooh, and he was called Petrus de Hagus. And he was lovely, I expect. And they'd been given Dryburg Abbey in the twelfth, the, the land round there in the twelfth century. Uh, uh, and although they were supporters of the Norman claims to the English, they subsequently fought on the side of the Scottish, uh, Scottish at uh, Stirling Bridge, Halidon Hill. Oh, I've never heard of Halidon Hill. Could you tell me a bit about the Battle of Halidon Hill, uh, Gary? No. <laughs> Otterburn, Battle of Otterburn. Uh, my, my wife uh, has a cottage, uh, her family has a cottage near there. And Flodden. Aye, the Battle of Flodden. That's my best ever Scottish accent. Unfortunately, <laughs> it is. Um, and uh, do you know what? We we love poetry, don't we, Gary? And uh, they're, they're, uh, the, the Hague's residence in the borders was, was commemorated by a really, a truly brilliant poem, uh, poet. Uh, called, and he was called Thomas the Raymer. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, their name had been Scottishized, that's a, a real word, Scottishized, to Hague. Um, and uh, you're going to recite just a line from the, well, a couple of lines from the poem in your best Scottish border accent. Tide, what may, what e'er be tide, Haig will be Haig of Burmeside. What a poet that chap Thomas the Rhymer was. He, he really was. Be tide, Burmeside. <laughs> Brilliant. What, what made them so rich? Well, they weren't uh, aristocrats or even great landowners. I think the term that best describes them is minor landed gentry. Um, we know some minor landed gentry. We do. David Barron, Colonel David Barron, uh, he's minor landed gentry. But they were well off, and this is largely thanks to the Hague whisky business, which was formerly founded by his father, John. Um, and, uh, you know, that's been a staple for undiscerning drunkards 
for many years. And John Haig had started so life... So you used to drink it, did you? Yes. John Haig had started life at a fairly modest level, but he proved to be a really successful distiller of whiskey. And uh, he had, at one stage, a, a, an annual income of around £10,000, which is an equivalent of about £650,000 in today's values. I think it's more than that. But uh, it, it's a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, that, that's a fantastic amount of money. Uh, for for well for the eighteen the 1800s mid eighteen hundreds that yeah. really is big yeah now um, he he uh, he was a bit of a social climber wasn't he and uh, he, you know became master of the five hounds uh, but he he was what they called trade wasn't he not an aristocrat he was trade he was a a, 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 a well essentially a, a middle class yeah and uh, this this was important because throughout his son's time in the army this fact was of great significance that he was the son of you know a merchant a tradesman and you've got a, a quote from uh, John Terrain uh, one of the great historians who was one of the first to really try and rehabilitate Haig's reputation in the educated soldier and back in 1963 he said and it's half humorous because John Terrain liked to drink <laughs> so uh, what do, what does John Terrain say about it? Yeah, he says in The Educated Soldier, which was published in 1963, he, he really felt it necessary to say that Douglas Haig's father was a distinguished whisky distiller, a calling which required no apology. <laughs> uh, so he's not an aristocrat, he's not a substantial landowner, but uh, he's from a, a wealthy family. Um, uh, his father was a good employer, I think, uh, uh, and uh, he uses new te technology. In fact, that's probably the foundation of his business. Uh, and, and you wanted to make a point about uh, uh, the Hague willingness to use new technology in the whisky distillery, because that sang out to you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I mean, it, if, you, <clears throat> if you look at his son, Douglas's use of new technology, uh, despite all the criticism that is laid at his door, Haig was very, very quick to understand the use of, for example, machine guns. He was, as much as anybody, a sponsor of the tank because, you know, he placed the order for the tank. Uh, and I think that may well be something he got from his father, although his father died, you know, when he was very young. Why did his father die? Oh, this, this also sang out to you, didn't it? Because well, you've had similar problems in your benighted life. Well, his, his father, John, was an alcoholic, you'll be surprised to learn. But he also suffered severely from asthma. And he died from an abscess of the liver in 1878. And on his death, he, he left instructions that his workforce could enjoy as much whiskey as they could drink. Now... The workforce later <laughs> tried to claim that he'd meant this to be an annual event to mark the anniversary of his death. Um, I bet that was stamped on. Yes, I think it was. <laughs> well done, the workforce. I think that shows a commendable initiative that you always like to see in a workforce. Um, anyway, uh, now, so at this point, the Douglas Haig family, uh, the, uh, the Haig, Douglas Haig's branch of the family, they didn't have control of Beamerside, and their main home was at Cameron House in Fife. But uh, Haig was always interested in Beamerside, wasn't he? The, the, family's, the family's seat. Yeah, I mean, it mattered to him. And, and later, um, you know, he, he he didn't own the land until after the Great War when it was purchased by subscription and given to him. Public subscription, yeah. Yeah, but he took the name as part of his title uh, at the end of the Great War. He was the Earl Hague of Burmeside. It was important to him. 
It was. Now, let's talk a bit about him. He was the 11th child. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Haig was an enthusiastic childbearer, or she was enthusiastic at something, anyway. Um, and uh, eight reached adulthood. Uh, he was a bit of a sickly child, though, uh, a bit like yourself these days. I mean, you've not been well for a long time, have you? No. Uh, what, what did he suffer from then? Well, like his father, he, he suffered from severe asthma, uh, and it, it made him what was described as a difficult child. Now, one of the favourite stories of Haig is uh, this time when they went, tried to get a family photo and they couldn't quite manage it because he, he acted up so much. And yet you had to stay still in those days for a photo. And the, that had to be abandoned. Next day, they got a photograph of him. And the only way they could get him was if he could hold his favourite toy pistol. Now, if this was a saint story, this would be seen as extremely significant. But it's great, the bad-tempered look uh, on his face. Uh, 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 and we'll put that photograph up. And another sign of his conduct was he was given a drum. And what, what had his mother written on it? Douglas Haig, sometimes a good boy patronising bastard, I've said that. Uh, and this aspect would hamper him throughout his childhood until in, in his late teens. And his, 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 his dad died early. His, his both parents, uh, Haig, John Haig in 1878 and his mother in 1879. Uh, and and the, another woman, uh, his mother was extremely important to him, wasn't she? Uh, uh, but then another woman took over. Who was that? Well, his sister, Henrietta, took on a role almost of a substitute mother because she was 10 years older That's than him. That's a big him. difference, isn't it? Um, but, it, I mean, it's interesting to know... I'm 10 years older than you, aren't I? You are, and, and you are like a mother to me. It's interesting that he, his father had very little influence on his life, or, in fact, on any of the children's lives. Uh, Except making him abstemious. Yeah, but his mother had really very strong religious beliefs, you know, typically Scottish uh, Christian beliefs. Um, and, More trouble with the Scots. <laughs> and, and, you know, that is an influence, as, as we'll probably later come to, on Haig's later life. Now, well, he, he goes to school, he goes to a prep school at Orwell House, uh, and there's, we've got a couple of quotes from his school report, and this must be the sort of thing, I, I have to say that these could have been written about me, all of them, and indeed, I'm sure, about you. Uh, what do they say? Uh, oh, it's me. <laughs> well, it, uh, it's interesting to note that, that he went to that school in 1871 with his brother, John. So he didn't go there alone. He had a, a sibling there with him. Spelling very poor and writing careless. Yeah. That's me. Tick. Ask any of my editors. <laughs> Rather tiresome at times. Tick. <laughs> As he is backward, he ought to be more attentive. Tick. They decided, I mean, it was hopeless. He would never have got into rugby, the, uh, which was uh, uh, had a, an entrance exam. So instead he went to a relatively recently founded Clifton College in Bristol in 1875. Uh, he could learn at a slower pace there, and he gradually got, or... or, or Asthma, the asthma came under control and he began to pick up academic speed and, and, and indeed began to play rugby, which, which means you can tell he's getting fitter because you, you can't play rugby if you... But, and in 1897, one of his uh, Haig's classmates, uh, Sir Henry Newbolt, he wrote a poem. Now, you were interested in this, weren't you? Tell, tell us, what's the poem called? Uh, well, I, I think not a lot of people will have heard of the school. Not a lot of people necessarily will have heard of Sir Henry Newbolt. But the poem, I think most people will recognise. It's called Vitae Lampada. Never heard of it. And it contains these famous lines. Play up, play up, 
and play the game. I've heard of that. And, and was very, very representative of the Victorian school at that time. Now, uh, Haig's reports begin to improve a lot, and I'll, I'll just read a couple of them. Uh, I'm afraid these are not like the reports I had at school. <laughs> Or yours. Uh, his spirits run away with him at times, but he is a good, honest worker and player. No, that's not me. <laughs> a capital fellow, both in work and play. No. Has done thoroughly well. A capital head of the form. I never even got made a prefect when everybody was made a prefect <laughs> in the sixth form. How, how was that? They must have seen something in me. They recognised your talent. Yes. As like we you. all do. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, Haig then went to Brasenose College, uh, Oxford University, in October 1880. Uh, and he, he began to show signs. He, he's beginning to show signs of the man he'd become, isn't he? And this is uh, Lord Asquith. What does Lord Asquith say about him afterwards? No dinner and no club deterred Haig if he was not prepared for a particular, le- particular lecture or essay. As to wine and cards, he was more than abstemious. Abstemious as well. Abstemious as well. I think it's interesting to note that he deferred his entry into Brasnose College because of the death of his mother. And he went to to America with his brother before uh, joining in October 1880. So he went on his travels. So he was broadening his mind as well at this stage. Now, at, at Oxford, he, he does reasonably well. He, he plays a lot of polo. Uh, and by this time, he's made his mind up to join join the army, doesn't he? And, and you later, think those Hague, two things are connected? Polo was very much a, a sport for somebody who had a, a mind for the army, wasn't it? Very much so at the time. And uh, Lady Haig quotes a contemporary. Uh, uh, she doesn't say who it is, but... Uh, the two were discussing future careers together. And his friend had said that he did not see much prospect in an army career. Douglas, looking very determined, replied, I am going into the army. It all depends on a man himself how he gets on in any profession. That was brilliant. It's like she was in the room. It was, wasn't it? Um, He passed all his examinations, as far as he went, but he had a very bad illness of some sort, some sort of influenza, and missed a term. And he couldn't complete the retired period of residence to allow him to qualify. Required. Uh, required, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if he'd stayed any longer, there was another t- deadline, wasn't there? So he's, he's got two competing deadlines. What's the other deadline then, Gary? It had been above the age limit uh, of 23 to begin officer training at Sanders. So it was one or the other. Yeah. If he wanted to complete his degree, he would have not gone to Sanders. So but that meant, of course, when he does go to Sanders, he's about three or four years older than his contemporaries. He enters the Royal Military College, Sanders, as a cadet in February 1884. And he does well, doesn't he? he, he he's sort of disciplining himself. He, self-discipline is very important. Something that you found in your early army days was important, didn't you? No, that was flagellation, self-flagellation. Right. Well, it helped you along, didn't it? Uh, it raised the bar, so to speak. Uh, now, he passed out first in the Order of Merit out of the 129 cadets and won the Anson Memorial Sword, which is a sort of precursor of the current Sword of Honour that the best cadet gets. Uh, he was then commissioned into the 7th Hazards. Now, you, you, you said this was... Uh, I was quite interested because I hadn't noticed this, but you noticed something about the 7th Hazards, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it's unsurprisingly, it's a regiment that's raised in Scotland. He, he is fiercely proud of his Scottish heritage. And like most Scots from the borders, he's really English, isn't he? Yeah. 
<laughs> that's that's for Derek. Hey. <laughs> anyway, um, he uh, in so in February eighteen eighty five he joins the Seventh Hussars at Aldershot, and then they move to Shorncliffe in September eighteen eighty six. And here he's leading the life of a typical young regimental officer: uh, routine duties, polo, that kind of thing, isn't it? And he leaves a, a quote, uh, and you're going to be Haig throughout. So uh, when, when we have quotes, you'll be reading them in, in your best uh, Douglas Haig voice. Um, and uh, what did he say about uh, just about where he lived and, and the conditions at Shorncliffe? My quarters consisted of two small rooms about eight foot square each. The roof let in the water when it rained. There was no lock on the doors and the wind came whistling through the cracks. At Shorncliffe it is always blowing half a gal and one is perished with cold. The men's huts are of concrete and are most comfortable. Mm, I'm not sure there is. <laughs> yeah, they might not agree with him. <laughs> no, I don't think you'd find the men agree with that. Now, in November 1887, they embarked for India aboard the tro- troop ship Euphrates. This is, uh, I mean, this is the empire. This is troops, uh, uh, regiments are sent out for long periods to India. They're part of the Indian, uh, the, 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 the garrison. And this is a very important part of a regular soldier's service. Uh, now, he, he, he goes out on the Euphrates and he's got something to say about the passengers, hasn't he? Uh, he says, the passengers are as a whole an uninteresting lot. Several newly married couples greatly taken up with each other. <laughs> One colonel, going out to command a battalion of the Rifle Brigade, is dubbed by the ladies the sentry, from the care he takes of his young wife. Five or six doctors on board, mostly married. One, styled the Dirty Doctor, a German-looking creature, excites the jealousy of an infantry captain. Both have just lately entered the matrimonial state, and both men's wives are in the same cabin. The doctor has the pull over the other. He can visit his wife's cabin to administer physic. What's physic? Medicine. Yes, I'm not sure. I've heard it called medicine (laughs) before. The other feels annoyed, no doubt. There are words and recourses had to the captain of the ship. But women are at the bottom of all quarrels. Yes, that's a little bit sexist by young Dougie, but he's a man of his time, I expect. Uh, now, in, in India, they're based in Hyderabad. And again, there's lots about routine duties. Um, and once again, you get lots about polo. His diaries are full of it, if you, if you know. Uh, and and, and, and uh, one thing, uh, I, I think we ought to... Uh, now's the time to face it, isn't it, Gary? We've got to face up to it. What did Haig look like at this time? Because we've got lots of pictures of him at this time. What does he look like? He was... Damned attractive. Drop-dead gorgeous, you described And wealthy. And wealthy. What more could a young discerning woman want? And there are pictures of him. Well, you noticed something about his accoutrements in most of the pictures, which uh, caught your roving eye, I believe. I believe you mean his moustache. <laughs> Do not mean his moustache. I mean, the fact he seems to be rarely photographed without his whip and thigh-length boots. <laughs> Well, obviously. Sorry, I thought I thought that would have been obvious. Yeah. Well, that's the. But he is a damned attractive young officer, and, and this is part of of the thing. He wasn't an old man in the eighteen eighties. He was a young, gorgeous-looking chap. Yeah, and I think you know to talk about the moustaches for a moment. Oh well, in, in, in the modern army, of course, it, it, you have to shave. You, you know, you would not have moustaches, but at that time. It was considered to be necessary for a, a dashing young officer. Well, what else would you twirl? 
<laughs> well, your whip for one thing. <laughs> yes. Now he he's also at this time getting you know the usual bouts of fever that you you would expect the curse of Indian service. Well, nearly everybody gets them, don't they? Yeah, but at one point he wrote home and said, "If I get any more fevers, I shall probably leave India at once." So he was constantly, constantly unwell. Yeah. Uh, we also, the other thing about India is shooting trips. And now we strongly disapprove, both of us, of shooting uh, various uh, big game hunting. But these are different times. And then there are lots of tigers, spare tigers, weren't there? Lots of, <laughs> they had them on every, every passing tree. Anyway, this is a quote from a shooting trip in Kashmir. And uh, this is quite an exciting story, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I would also point out that it uses the language of the time. It's not necessarily language that we would use today. So, Monday, December the 30th, 1889. After getting beaters, etc., we start about 12 o'clock. I hear some rustling in the bushes, and Leobert fires. There is no roar. He says he has hit a tiger. We follow the wounded tiger. Now, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I seem to remember from my Big Game Hunters for Boys book that you never follow a wounded tiger. Well, they did. And he says, every coolie is up a tree on the topmost twig. They know. Jungle is very thick, so it is somewhat jumpy work. We go over some big stones amongst thick jungle and we come across the tiger. Somewhat hard to see, though. I put on my spectacles... You're going all husky with the excitement of the moment. The animal roars and rises up. This is a signal for all the guns to be let off. In fact, there is greater danger from the rear than the front. Tiger goes on about 40 or 50 yards and falls over. Again, a discharge, and he moves no more. A litter was made of boughs on which the tiger was carried by 16 coolies. In front of this came the band consisting of a couple of tom-toms and native minstrel singers. Now, uh, besides hunting, Haig's proven himself an efficient young officer, isn't he? And he's selected to be adjutant in July 1888. That's that's short service to be chosen. I mean, the adjutant is essentially the admin officer, the staff officer of the colonel. He's the one through which the colonel distributes... He's the, well, the the right-hand man of the colonel, isn't he? Uh, And he's also selected to act as brigade major, a cavalry camp, and then also, uh, again, attached for special duty to the headquarters staff of the Bombay Army. Uh, That's that's good professional progress. He's He's clearly being marked out as an efficient young officer. And now, you know officers. Are all officers efficient? Yes. Hmm. Well, they they saw through you. They're, they're certainly young. <laughs> You're going with all officers. All the young officers are young. Yes, yes. Right, I'll go with that. Now, he said, "Hey, you read lots of things, and and when you read books by Lady Haig and other people, there's lots of things saying that Haig is the best thing since sliced bread." Now, we we have a different perception on this because if you if you've got a field marshal and you ask, "What was he like when he was young?" You're going to get a lot of people saying he was wonderful. Yeah. It's like they've got a gun to their head. Well, this is a quote from Sergeant S. Griffiths of the 7th Hussars. And it does seem that uh, for at least this bloke, he liked Haig. So what, what, are you go- what, what, what are you going to say about this, Sergeant Griffiths? He was always kind and considerate to his men. He was very well liked by all the men. After I had a breakdown in health, I was in hospital with enteric fever off and on for 12 months. He would come down to hospital and talk to the serious cases, ask if he could do anything for you. Well, he's lovely, isn't he? Well, yeah, but who visits a hospital and he's horrible to the people in the hospital? You. Oh, yeah, true. 
Um, now, it goes back to England in September 1892 to study for staff college examinations. Uh, now, normally, the cavalry don't like it, do they? Uh, the, 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 the cavalry only had, I think, well, well, this is a figure you found. Uh, tell, tell. Yeah, it, it's looked down on by the cavalry. Only 38 cavalry officers, officers entered the staff college between 1856 and 1888, and it wasn't only the cavalry. Uh, there's a quote by Sir Ian Hamilton who oh. said that it was a proud boast of the Gordons that none of their officers had ever entered the Staff College or ever would. Now, we know a Gordon Highlander, don't we? Um, we do, Colonel David Barron. And I think he went to uh, Staff, Staff College. College. He went to a Canadian Staff College. That's, that's going... Perhaps yeah. he was the first. He might, almost certainly. Uh, now, in June 1893, Haig fails the Staff College examination. Now, this is a big moment in, and always seized upon by Hague haters uh, as something that's really important. But there, there are a couple of re- Why did he fail? There were two reasons why he fell. What's the first reason? Well, the first reason is he failed the maths test, uh, which was a compulsory pass, and he failed it by about 18 marks, I think. And he passed everything else on it, and he said he was taught the wrong syllabus. What, he, he, had a, a, he, had a, he sent in a staff officer's report <laughs> with about 18 reasons why, why it was wrong. But he also failed for something else. Now, this is more serious, and, and he contested this, and I think he contested this successfully. What was that? Well, it, there was uh, a diagnosis of colour blindness. Um, now he he really did object, and he and he took professional uh, advice, and he he went to see uh, noted doctors of the time. One I think was a, a doctor in Paris or Vienna, and and contested it rigorously. And one of the reasons he did it was that if he was colourblind, he shouldn't have been allowed to take the test in the first place. So why let him take the test? Um, but it but it was all in vain. Well, all in vain then. He did get the colour, he got that overturned, but he didn't get the decision overturned because he had failed the maths part. Anyway, tail between his legs, I think. Uh, I nearly made a rude joke there. Thank goodness I stopped myself in time. Uh, He went back to the 7th Hussars in India, not for long, and he was then selected to be ADC, aide-de-camp, to the Inspector General of Cavalry, General Keith Fraser, and he left India... for a good uh, in April 1894. Now, uh, why why is this important to his future career? Well, what does he do as aide de camp? That doesn't sound. That sounds like getting his, his cup of tea and making sure his diary is clear. But it enables him to do something else, doesn't it, Gary? Yeah, I mean, it, it allows him to get round most of the cavalry regiments in the UK, and in fact. Uh, he visits um, uh, other countries too. He goes to both France and Germany, I think, during this period. Um, and, and this is important. Uh, yeah, France in 1893, 1895, he goes to Germany uh, studying the, 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 the German cavalry. Now, while he's there, he did two things of gro- to us great for him. He looked at the cavalry exercises, wrote great reams of reports, and he did two things that are important. The first thing is he met a lovely doggy. And we're going to put that picture up. And you were particularly entranced by two things about the doggy, weren't you? One, how lovely the dog looked. And two, how lovely Haig looked in that photograph. You said, what did you say about that picture? Well, they say that often uh, a dog resembles uh, their their owner. And um, he, he does. You know, he looks gorgeous, both puppy and owner. And did you meet, you, you served in Germany. Did you meet some nice doggies when you were out there? I met a number of nice doggies. Woof, woof. Anyway, the other thing he met, he met his greatest... The other thing he met. Yes, and I'm using that word deliberately. Okay. The other thing he met was what the man who would prove to be his greatest enemy, other than, of course, Lloyd George. Uh, 
And who was that? The Kaiser. Dun! Dun, 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 dun. Wilhelm the Second. Not the first. No, he's dead. No. Uh, so tell us, uh, tell us about that. What? So Haig says, I found myself not amongst the foreign officers, but at the end of the table opposite the emperor. After we had been a certain time at dinner, the emperor drank his health, then signalled that he wished, wished to drink my health too. So I stood up and emptied my glass to the Kaiser in the usual style. Nay, he'll tap. Nay, he'll taps. He did the same. These were the only healths his majesty's drank, except of those quite close to him in the family, so to speak. After dinner, we went into the picture gallery and the emperor came and asked me about my regiment what I was anxious to do, and the length of leave which I had. Altogether, he was most friendly. I mean, they, they should have shot each other and it would have saved the world a lot of trouble. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I suppose that would have been seen as untoward behaviour at the time. Um, he, as an early return, he was appointed as staff officer. There's two things, two people he's introduced to, and he wants to make a point. The first one, he was appointed as staff officer to Colonel Sir John French. This isn't that for a staff tour. Um that's going to be conducted by Quartermaster General Sir Evelyn Wood. Now, you wanted to make a, a point about the, the, Sir John French. These two people are very important to his career, aren't they? Sir John French, I think we'll deal with later. Do you, do you... Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time he's met Sir John French. He met him in India, of course. But their their careers, their paths, constantly crisscross from this point onwards. And you mentioned the Quartermaster General Sir Evelyn Wood. That is a really significant meeting because he asks Haig to send detailed reports of his French and German trips. And he does, doesn't he? And he acts as a sort of sponsor or de facto patron. Now, is this this is this favouritism? Is this wrong? Uh, uh, or is this something that's quite usual at the time? It might still be wrong, by the way. Um, but there are rings of officers, weren't there? Competing rings of officers. I mean, can you think of the other... other? Yeah, you've got Roberts, you've got Wolseley. Um, but whether it's healthy or not, I'm not sure, because they were competing with each other. But they did identify young, thrusting officers who they should take an interest in their careers. It was not unusual. So it's not, it's not some sort of ridiculous favouritism it's just of the time isn't it now um he's also given the task of writing uh, uh, the uh, the 1895 revised cavalry drill book i think we'll pass on that it, 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 it but it's important professionally at the time uh, now he now gets into staff college why does he get into staff college suddenly what happens there well he gets uh, a nomination from the retiring commander-in-chief the duke of cambridge i think his sister henrietta had been active in the background as had sir evelyn wood and others again that's not unusual it was within the gift of the duke of cambridge to do that and uh, he does enter the staff college in january 1896 now he works it's a 22 month course best part of two years i would imagine then and uh, my maths is just superlative. And uh, during the test, uh, John Edmonds is there. I presume he was a captain as well. John Edmonds later wrote the history of the Great War, the military operations history of the Great War, and is an extremely amusing and acerbic uh, witness to events. Uh, and he, he, says, uh, he says this about, uh, about Haig at Staff College. And uh, you can see the developing mind. Uh, and he says this, If a scheme interested him, he took tremendous pains with it. <laughs> 
change of officer. If he thought there was no profit in working it out, he sent in a perfunctory minimum. Ah, I remember a road reconnaissance sketch at which most of us lavished extreme care, marking all the letterboxes, pumps, gateways into the field, and such like. Haig! handed in a sheet with a single brown chalk line down the centre. The crossroads shown and the endorsement. Twenty miles long, good surface, wide enough for two columns, with cordless both ways. <laughs> well, that was a mixture of accents for you. <laughs> you Oh dear. You're laughing in admiration? I am laughing in admiration, yes. And now, well, he also did something there that's quite significant in that he prepared a, a, a report on a, a detailed factual report uh, on, uh, and with uh, very detailed appendices on the possible invasion and reconquest of the Sudan. And that's going to be important. Well, not important because it's not you, but it, 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 it's, it's interesting in that uh, it mirrored what would happen just a year later under Kitchener's command. Now, it, that Sudan campaign of 1898 is going to be the heart of this podcast, in a sense, because it's, it's where Hay gets his first experience of the heated ba- battle, isn't it? It's, this is where, because th- there's something that every officer is going to be thinking about. What, 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 uh, can, can they commend men in, in action? And there's something else. What about themselves? Will they be scared? Will they be able to control their fears? And, and no matter how good you may be as a professional soldier in peacetime you're always going to wonder if you can really do it in the heat of battle uh, that must have been going through his mind or anybody else's mind uh, did you not think yeah and i think uh, you know what's the point of a professional soldier you've got to think that they would all want to test themselves in war now, what is the Sudan campaign? Well, it, the, the background lies in it's, it's British colonialism as usual, and uh, we we uh, the, the General Gordon uh, had been uh, had been killed uh, at Khartoum at the hands of the Mahdi in 1885, uh, and then ten years later, his successor, the Khalifa, still ruled the Sudan, and Britain still wanted revenge, didn't it? So, oh, well, and but there's something else. <laughs> this is always portrayed as revenge for. Gordon of Khartoum, but I think there's something else going in the background. You you were pretty convinced. Why, why would Britain suddenly decide to do something about it then, ten years later? Well, I think they were concerned at uh, other European powers uh, having an interest in Sudan, particularly the French, um, because otherwise it's, you know, is it revenge is a dish best served cold? Would it waited over ten years for the revenge? Very cold. Very cold. So, no, I think it was, uh, I think it was colonialism at its uh, finest. Yes. Uh, now, in 1896, the British and Egyptian forces under General Horatio K- Kitchener, uh, this would be Kitchener cartoon, we're going to hear about him in the, sec- in the First World War, not the Second World War, he didn't have much of a part in that for some reason. K of K. KFK, yeah. And he uh, captured the Dongola province. And then uh, in 1897, he begins to, well, it's a logistically fraught task, isn't it? So what does he, what does he do? What, what does he have to, he sets, he, he believes in solid foundations as Kitchener, doesn't he? Yeah, so he has to build a, a, a railway. It's 200 miles long across the desert. Uh, otherwise, you're reliant on river transport down the Nile, which What's is... problem with that? Well, it's incredibly dangerous. There's lots of cataracts all the way down. What's a cataract? You've just had cataracts taken out of your eyes. <laughs> no, I haven't. That's the future operation. Uh, 
I've not had cataracts. But it, it's good. It's places for ambush and it's winding uh, and it's not you ideal. You can't sail a boat up. Uh, uh, wait, it's, it's a rapid, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, so uh, they build a 200-mile a railway. 200-mile railway. Is that a big job? It is a big job. And, and then it's done in the traditional way. You know, they, they, they're laying uh, and moving the engine all the way across. How long does it take London Underground to uh, build a, a new railway line? Oh, about a week. What about that crossrail thing you were in charge when, of, Gary? I had nothing to do with that, and you know. How long has it been going, right? <laughs> anyway, Kitchener intended to advance and retake Khartoum. And that's the capital of the Sudan, I presume. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, how does this involve Hague? Well, Kitchener asked for some special service support from the staff college, and in uh, January, 28th January 1898, uh, Captain Douglas Haig, along with two others, left England for special service in the Sudan, attached to the Egyptian cavalry. Now, this is it's important. So he's not with the British Army, in essence. No. He's, with the, he's, he's a servant of the Egyptian Army. Yep. Uh, now, uh, before he goes, uh, he, he promises to do something. for who does? Well, he meets with General Sir Evelyn Wood, and, and he agrees to write to him. He's Adjutant General at this time. He's Adjutant he? General, and he agrees to write to him with his, his frank views on the conduct of the campaign, and you'll like this, the abilities of his senior officers. Mm, now, that is a bit dodgy, I think, uh, but is it is it common for the time? Well, I'm not sure that's common. Um, you know, it suggests to me that Sir Evelyn Wood had a, a bit of an agenda. Uh, but not only does he agree to do this, he also visits the Royal Ordnance Factory, which is near here in Enfield. Why is that important? Well, he, he goes to learn the mechanism of the Maxim machine gun. Now, you and I both think this is a, a, an early sign of his appreciation of the importance of this weapon. And indeed, we mentioned something a bit later on. Uh, you know, he, he's clearly interested in understanding the machine gun and its its purpose and abilities. And the, later on, we, we'll hear him in these quotes we, discussing That's what I'm it. saying. It, we mention it later on. Now, uh, he disembarks at Portside. Lovely place, lovely place. Did you ever visit Portside in your travels? No. You'd have enjoyed it. Um, and uh, so, so, is he happy? Well, he says, The longer I stay here, the more lucky I seem to be in having got to this Egyptian army. The crowd of fellows that have asked to be taken and refused is very great. I hear the cavalry is full as regards regular officers. Kitchener will only take the best now and picks and chooses from the hundreds who are anxious to come. So it's self-congratulatory in a sense, but he appreciates he's been lucky. He appreciates that the opportunity has been given. He sets off up the Nile by steamboat with the railways, uh, the railway carrying him past the rapids. Or oh, so, cataracts. So. Now, he's well aware of the importance of the railway, isn't he, in, in campaign logistics, and he describes a bit about it. And I put this in because it, it's of interest to you. This was your career. This is where you became a captain of industry and uh, the, the titanic figure that even today is spoken of in whispers in the halls of Transport for London and railways across the world. Titanic sank. I know. He says, It is wonderful the way the railway is put down. There are about a couple of thousand men in the railway battalion. Great strong fellows who never tire. I see one of them running with two heavy wooden sleepers on his shoulder and ten of them carry a rail at a swinging trot. The sleepers are brought up. Another lot of men arrange them on the embankment as they arrive at the right distances. Then the rails arrive and each lot of men drop their rail first as far as their knees and then, on the word of command, drop it onto the sleepers within an inch or two of its right place. 
The rails are then spiked down, gauged, belted together and all without a hitch. The engine with the material train keeps creeping on every moment as the line is laid. It's really a strange sight. Interesting, the detail, the level of the intelligent appreciation of what's going on. Now, he'd begun to uh, uh, learn Arabic. This is a time-honoured tradition of of the British officer. I remember doing an interview with someone who had to learn an Indian dialect, and uh, he he was doing really badly. And at his test, he was told to uh, say, uh, could you tell that man to, uh, you know, that man there to come here? And he said whatever it was, Igly Spligly, and uh, the man came here. And they said, uh, could you tell that man to go over there, pointing over there? That's what he did. He didn't know the word for go over there. So he ran over to this point and said, come here again. That's the level, that's the level of knowledge they had. But they did have to learn. Why is it important to communicate with your men or, or, or should you leave it to interpreters? Or, or you, uh, It's important to be able to speak directly to people, isn't it? It is. It's firstly so that it's not confusing. And your officers used to speak directly to you, <laughs> very directly. Anyway, he he moves in stages up to Berber, and he says, "You might, however, when you get this, send me out two or three boxes of supplies." This is a letter to his sister Henrietta. The sort of things I would like would be jam, tinned fruits, cocoa, vegetables, haddocks in tin, tongue biscuits, some hock and a bottle or two of brandy or any other sort of drink. Whiskey I get here all right, but you know better than I do what sort of things to send. Spend whatever you like on the things, £50 or more. £50? Yeah, so he's not going to go without, is he? Oh, but £50 would be a year's salary for some people. Yeah. Now he sums up the tactical situation like this. The present idea is that the dervishes are advancing northwards from Shendi under a young emir called Mamond. Hence, great efforts have been made by the Sidia, Sidar, sorry, which is Kitchener, it's the title that he's, he's given, and his staff to concentrate the British brigade with all available Egyptian troops at the junction of the Atbara and the Nile. The difficulty consists in feeding them. Before this reaches you, you will have heard by wire, whether the dervishes have come on or not. It would be great luck if they did come on, because then they would bring the whole matter to a conclusion at once. For if they gave fight and are beaten, we could probably pursue them right on to Khartoum. So he's quite keen to get into action, and he appreciates that if they, if they attack the British, they'll be defeated and, and the campaign will be quickly resolved. Now, he describes his living conditions, doesn't he? Here, we are living in great luxury. I have a fine big room. It is said to have been a mosque. The other officers have two or more rooms, but small. We also have a mess and plenty of stores. The poor British brigade are much less fortunate. They arrived near here this morning, very footsore and many quite done up. Some of the officers' feet all blood from the hot sand and many of the men without boots and unable to walk at all. Now, they move forward to Atbara, and at this stage, he hasn't got... He's sort of extra personnel attached to cavalry, learning Arabic. He's not being given a squadron to command. And he, he, when he writes to Sir Evelyn Wood, he is using the facility... Well, the permission, if you like, he's been given to be critical, isn't he? Yeah, he says uh, in a letter to Evelyn Wood, I have watched the Sudanese and Egyptian infantry manoeuvring in brigade in the morning and busied myself with Arabic during the day. And now I will say something about the march of the British. You will, of course, have had a full description of it in official language, so I won't describe it. 
but will merely give you the distances as they appear to me after going over the ground and after checking them by the map and by the miles on the track prepared for the railway. I did so because I have asked many fellows in the brigade from the general downwards what distances they covered and without exception the distances stated to have been marked seemed to me to be overestimated. Now, for the sake of learning something, I think it is best to keep to the facts. Interesting. Uh, it's, it's interesting how he checks things, how he's interested professionally. And this business about overestimated distances, we saw that in Gallipoli when, remember that the chap said it was three and a half miles across from the salt, across the salt lake and in reality it was about a mile. Yep. So it's an enduring thing. Now, he's also, uh, he's also, he, something else he writes to, to, to Wood. I am half doubtful whether I should give you my opinion of the native army without being asked for it first of all. So I won't give you my opinion, but will state what I have seen, and you can then judge for yourself as to whether the brigades are trained to fight. First, the COs of battalions do not delegate any power at all to their British officers, but run the whole show themselves. Now, that's also a, a criticism that's levelled at Kitchener. Yes. I have seen on more than one occasion that fire discipline does not exist. There may be section commanders in name, but the sighting of the rifles and firing of the men is not attended to when attacking a position. There seems to be only one position in which men fire, viz rear rank standing, front rank kneeling. I've seen the site at 700 yards, all through a mimic battle. That's a site set, I think he means. Uh, so, I mean, that's not right. You need to change your sights or you miss. As regards the marching of the blacks, they are apparently allowed to fall out and straggle to any extent. Though I am not impressed with the battle training of the blacks and their march discipline, they seem fine, strong fellows and move well. The real pity is that so many valuable and keen young officers are not more used to train the men. They could have got more. I mean, there's all the, as he said, there's hundreds of officers wanted to come out there. They could have had more officers to help train them. We apologise. I mean, you you understand that the language of the we, we both uh, yeah. the language of the time is the language of the time. There's no point changing it because you can't change history uh, in this particular case. Now he he has his first skirmish, his first action, doesn't he? And this is this is the moment, isn't he? Isn't it? <laughs> he says, Monday morning all the cavalry, some eight squadrons, and a battalion of horse artillery went out to reconnoitre for the dervish forces. When we had got to a ford called Abadar, ten miles off, the force halted except two squadrons, one of which moved up each bank. I went with the one on the right bank and Le Galais, a major of the 8th Hussars. After doing some eight miles, we left the bulk of the squadron and he and I went on with small patrol. Arrived near a place called Mutras, where some thick bush begins, we saw a single scout of the enemy. But only for a moment, for he galloped off on seeing us. Now, the next bit shows, I think, shows that uh, actually Hagen, Le Galle, uh, actually cocked up a bit. Because they lead them, they lead the, uh, the, the dervishes uh, or, uh, right back to the main body, don't they? They're, take up, they're back at Abadar. Suddenly the alarm was given that the dervishes were attacking the outposts. In fact, the scout whom we had seen had galloped off and brought up some 100 or 200 cavalry who followed us back to Abadar, then came suddenly upon the outposts and killed two or three men. The squadrons were soon after them and the dervish cavalry retired through the bank. 
We pursued the dervishes back for some eight or ten miles before returning, and it was almost 11pm before we reached here. Now, what I like is he then sums up for Wood the lessons that he's learned. And I think these are the sort of lessons that are important, aren't they? This is what it's all about. This is his, it shows his mind. He's not stupid. He's always thinking. Number one, the outpost service, though theoretically right, was carelessly done. When I passed the picket in question, many were lying down apparently asleep. Two, the eyesight of the Egyptian vedette can't be relied on, for the dervishes passed the front line of the vedettes. Three, the pluck of the Egyptian cavalryman is right enough, in my opinion. 4. The horse artillery against enemy of this sort and in scrub is no use. We felt, we, want, uh, we felt the want of machine guns when working along outside of scrub for searching some of the tracks. It's uh, interesting, isn't it? That machine guns, uh, he, he sees, he understands the, the, the potential right away. Uh, this is, uh, remember, this is in... 1898 this isn't this isn't 1914 then he's grasped it now he then starts to go on a, a series of uh, uh, cavalry patrols does he enjoy it i have enjoyed my reconnaissance oh, work very much <laughs> but it is slow for the infantry sitting in camp doing nothing for the days are hot and the officers of the british have only what they stand in and a blanket now uh, what does he think uh, so he's now part of the army. What does he think of the Sirdar? What does he think of Kitchener? He is a man that does everything himself and, in fact, has no headquarters staff at all. Indeed, General Hunter, who has come to command the troops in the field, cannot get the Sirdar to tell him what his position in the army is. In addition, the Sirdar is most silent and no one has ever the slightest notion what is going to be done until he gives his orders. He has two aides-de-camp, who have a hardish time, but beyond them he employs no staff at all. Sometimes it might be better for the comfort of the troops if he had a staff, but on the whole things get along very well and we cavalry get a pretty free hand. Well, that's, that's interesting. That, this is really interesting because this is what people say about Kitchen. He can't delegate. But staff, staff are crucial, aren't they, in the First World War? Staff are crucial in any war. Uh, why hasn't he got admins, so quartermasters, adjutant generals, that kind of thing, to, to, to make life more comfortable? Now, the first real battle is on Tuesday, April the 5th. And the cavalry brigade, that's commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Broadwood is accompanied by the horse artillery and two Maxim batteries, two machine gun batteries. And they have a pretty sharp battle, don't they? Tell us about that, young Haig. The horsemen, which we had already repulsed, advanced up a sort of dip in the ground and came round our flank from upstream. The dervish infantry left their trenches and came at top speed towards us. And the cavalry, which had gone downstream, came directly across our line of retreat. Broadwood gave me the order to see to the safety of the guns, which meantime were trotting gaily on to the rear. I went direct to the Maxims and told them they must come into action against the most threatening of the enemy, which I indicated, as soon as the cavalry cleared their fields of fire. I then went off to Broadwood, who was still in front, to get him to lead the cavalry to a flank. I met him coming back with Mahon's squadrons, which were now pretty unsteady, as well they might be, for the infantry was round their flank and only 500 yards off and firing like blazes. 
Broadwood at once led off the cavalry to the flank and the Maxims were able to open again, fire. Again, he's got that point, hasn't he? This saved us for the moment and the squadron again being steadied, we were able to fight our way out of the reach of infantry fire. Had the dervish horsemen been all the papers say of them, we would never have got away. Fortunately, they ran away the moment we showed a bold front and only came on when we turned our backs. Our casualties were pretty severe, 30 and 10 killed. We had over 20 horses shot and many wounded. Now, in this battle, it was the, the Egyptian cavalry, and, and by extension, Haig, are considered to have done well. He's recommended by Broadwood. Uh, for his, his conduct is recommended. He's given a brevet major rank. And uh, there was one instant during it where, where he shows... He shows considerable personal courage. Now, this is often exaggerated in biographies, but let's, let's listen to Haig telling the story. And I think ta- Haig puts it exactly in context. He does not boast, does he? No, he says, When the squadron, squadrons were returning, just before the Maxims came into action, I was able to pick up a poor devil of an Egyptian who was wounded in the shoulder and had given himself up for lost and put him in front of my saddle and carried him to the guns where we had some spare horses and the doctor. This is quite the Jim Carner style of things which you used to see in India. In doing this I did not incur the slightest danger, though there is no doubt that had I not taken this man, the dervishes would have got him. So the man was in danger, but Haig felt he wasn't. Uh, and when you read, uh, sometimes you read exaggerated accounts of this, he should have got a VC for him. That's just nonsense. Uh, and he puts it in context. Uh, it was an act of some personal courage, but uh, not exceptional in, in any way. Uh, 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 although it would be exceptional if you or I did it. <laughs> now, uh, the, the next thing is 8th of April is the Battle of Atbara, uh, which is at the uh, well, where the uh, Nile and the Atbara meet, you would call it a confluence, I think. And some ten to fifteen thousand dervishes uh, are ejected from their position by three British and Egyptian brigades. So, this this is quite a, a large scale battle. The, the cavalry don't play much of a role, do they? Uh, but one thing about it is, Haig is extremely rude about journalists and their newspaper reports, and and. Why is this important? Well, I think we all know what Haig later on thinks of journalists. Well, to tell us, uh, what, what does he say? We've just received the London papers of 9th April with accounts of the battle on the Atbara. What rubbish the British public delights to read. The exaggeration of some of the reports almost makes a good day's work appear ridiculous. The headings of the Daily Telegraph are so overdrawn that instinctively one says, Waterloo eclipsed. So it's just lies and exaggeration. Are journalists like that today, do you think? No. You think that now you get completely accurate reports of everything that happens? Yes. And you believe everything you read. What newspaper do you read, by the way, Gary? None. What newspaper is delivered to your house? Daily Mail. Now, um, interesting is he's very critical, isn't he? Uh, trenchant criticism. Um, he's a thinking young officer, but in a way, this is a, a this is really critical. And remember who he's writing to. He's not writing to his mum, is he? Oh, she's dead. That would be strange. He's writing to uh, the quartermaster general. What does he say? There are some no, points. Adjutant general, by this point. Sorry. Feel free to interrupt me. I there will. Are, there are some points in the day's movements which seem to me interesting to discuss at a powwow just for the sake of instruction. For instance, why was the attack frontal? Now that's interesting. Why was the attack frontal? 
It seemed to me from the very first day that we reconnoitred the place that an attack on the enemy's right offered great advantages. The enemy would have been forced to retreat across the open desert to the Nile without being allowed time to fill water skins, etc. for the march. Next, what about the use made of the artillery? Distant fire was not required. In fact, the first and only range was some 700 yards. Our side says the guns did tremendous damage. Mahmoud, questioned by Fitton, who is a sort of intelligence officer here, says, We did not mind the guns. They only hurt camels and donkeys. The infantry fire was what destroyed us. As far as I can make out, the artillery preparation frightened a good many of the spearsmen and they bolted. The deep nature of the trenches prevented shrapnel searching it. Hang on. Hang on. What did you just say? The deep nature of the trenches presented, prevented shrapnel... Ooh, when, when does that become relevant? 1916, do you think? 1516? Another point is the formation of the force for the attack. Each brigade attacked on a front of about three to 400 yards. So looking on, it struck me that our formation was extraordinarily deep. This may have accounted for our severe losses. Thinking officer. It's, it, uh, 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 by the way, the point about the artillery, you've got to remember that the, the British guns at this point, and indeed during the Boer War, are not the, the guns of the, the, uh, the uh, First World War. In fact, it was the experiences of the Boer War in particular that caused the introduction of the 18-pounder, a more effective, uh, rapid, fire, quick-firing gun. Uh, so he's not talking about that kind of gun. He's talking about the guns that were no good. Uh, now, um, how does he feel about being given his own Egypt, Egyptian uh, cavalry squadron? Is this good news to the young lad? It is, and he says, Personally, I feel very lucky in having a squadron to command because I have a perfectly free hand. This means I have plenty of work, and work which I like. All my men are under two years' service, most just over a year. I have as well 25 remounts. All the equipment, clothing, etc., is in my own hands, so I can hustle everyone between here and Cairo who can possibly provide my wants. But the Siddhar has done me well in the way of saddlery, because the moment I took over command of the squadron, I was given 126 new sets of saddlery. Boots, clothing, etc. are on their way from Cairo, so I can't complain that I've been treated in a stingy manner. My chief complaint against this cavalry is that many of the officers, Egyptians, are duffers. We play polo with them twice a week to make them ride and be a bit more manly, but the majority don't improve much. Now, I find this quote interesting because uh, besides the fighting, he appreciates the importance of admin. He's a, an ex-adjutant, he's a staff officer. He knows that you have to have things like remount sorted, you have to have the basics there, the food, the equipment, the clothing, and he's got a grip of that. As to the... The Egyptian cavalry officer, well, I suspect many of them weren't very keen. Uh, do you think polo makes you more manly? No, but I think, you know, for a cavalry officer, it, it teaches you how to control the animal. Um, but no, I don't think it makes you more manly at all. Now, uh, the next thing is they advance towards, well, to the, the, they're coming to Omdurman and uh, there, there's more skirmishes, but we, get, we, we, we haven't got much longer. So uh, let, let's talk about the Battle of Omdurman on the 2nd of uh, September 1898. Uh, we haven't got time for much detail. Uh, where would you read about this? Well, uh, any any book on the Sudan, which and, and I'll be looking to to find a good one to recommend it for. And uh, then there's, there's a Douglas Scott's a preparatory prologue, Douglas Haig. 
uh, which uh, which has a lot of accounts for the battle. But there are two or three points which we've extracted about uh, Haig's personal role, and you're going to read them. There's quite a lot of reading here, and I'll chip in uh, to uh, try and draw uh, any points out. The dervishes were climbing the hill at a great pace. The fire of the horse battery was of not the slightest effect in checking them, and by the Siddhar's orders the Maxims were now sent to the infantry, who had taken up a defensive position at the camp. The horse battery took up a second position on the second ridge of the Kareri Hill. The cavalry still stood supporting the Camel Corps, still in action on the southmost ridge. By this time, the dervishes had crossed the westerly part of the southerly ridge, and a hot fire now fell upon the squadrons. The camel men mounted, and together with the squadrons, fell back over the stony ground behind the second or more northerly ridge. Now, I have to say, I don't understand a word of what's going on here, but uh, it gives you an impression of the complexity of, of what's going on. There's the, there's movements, there's hills, there's all sorts of things. Carry, sorry, Gary. I'm just, yeah. No, carry on. You're right. It, it's quite confusing, actually, what, what the way he's describing it. Our losses were severe during this short retirement. The cavalry was halted behind the guns which were in action. I said I thought the position unsuitable for us. I had scarcely made the remark before my trumpeter was shot above the right temple, the bullet remaining embedded at the back of his head. He was still quite cheerful. <laughs> his horse was also wounded. My leading troop leader standing next was hit, and the guide behind him was hit on the thigh. Two other horses were also hit, all in less time than it takes to write. The cavalry retired northwards with the artillery battalions, two guns of which had to be abandoned. That's not going well, is it? But that, that's a great little quote. I do enjoy that, that, some of the humour. But once again, I want to make... This is a young officer under fire. People are being killed around him. This, this is what... He's not always a field marshal or a general. This is him as a captain or a brevet major. Uh, now, uh, the der dervish attacks are beaten off and then the ca cavalry are sent in. Uh, this is the, the, the big charges. Uh, what, what happens to the Egyptian cavalry? The Egyptian cavalry now galloped out in pursuit towards the round-topped hill. What was that? Bare arse hill, do you think? Well, it, again, it demonstrates, you know, call it what you see. We crossed the front of the infantry. Many wounded men still rose up and fired at us as we approached and spearmen tried to hurl a spear. As we proceeded westwards, many little groups of men dropped down on their knees in submission, though some firmly resisted till killed by our lances. I saw, too, men beg for pardon, and then, when we had passed, treacherously assault some unsuspecting trooper from the rear. Wow. That's, uh, so uh, this, this, uh, there, there was some criticism after the battle of, uh, of uh, too many of the dervish uh, wounded being killed the Sudanese wounded being killed um, and I think this is Haig trying to explain what what's going on uh, and these things are always difficult to to explain to, to explain in some ways this is lives at stake and people tend to be ruthless uh, it's 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 yes it's just what it is now Haig then directs a charge doesn't he yeah he says we commenced our gallop my squadron on the left, the centre one directing, and a third squadron on the right. The fire increased as we advanced, and men on my left who had flung down their arms in submission picked them up again, so that we were enveloped with a crossfire from all directions. And there you go. You see, you let people surrender, and then they, they, they get their arms up again and start firing at you. The squadron on my right passed in rear of mine to my left, and the right one did likewise. 
its leader galloping right across my front. My men seemed to bend their heads to the right, as one does to escape a storm of rain. I had seen eight horses go down in my front rank, and being unsupported on my right flank, I too brought up my right and moved now directly on Signal Hill. Our three squadrons had attacked some ten or more thousand resolute and armed men, all scattered across the plain. I lost only five men wounded, but nineteen horses. Our horses were now dead beat, and we moved to the hill after dressing our wounded. And that was about it for the battle for him. And I'm, I don't, in no way do we expect you to understand the Battle of Omdurman from these quotes. But they give... It, Haig is in action, isn't he? He's fighting. Uh, and he's not fighting as a general. He's fighting as a soldier, as a young officer. Um, the, the battle was won. The next day they advanced through Omdurman and into Khartoum. General Corden has been avenged. And... The Sudan has been brought into the, back into the British Empire. Which do you think is most important? Well, the latter, but it's also worth noting it's at an enormous cost in human life. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, on both sides. Yeah. Uh, lots of people are being... Uh, I, I have no idea what the Sudanese casualty figures are, but I bet they're uh, high. Uh, and uh, empires are vicious things, uh, I'm afraid. Now, uh, it, it's all over, and by late September, Haig's begins the long journey back. Uh, his Sudanese adventure's over, isn't it? Uh, and he resigns his Egyptian commission. Uh, he's no longer part of the Egyptian army, goes back to the British army. By early October, he's back in London. How do you, how do you think he's done? Let, let's sum this up. You've been, you've been reading it. You, uh, I've just been listening. So you've sort of been living it vicariously. How do you think he did? Well, it, he obviously responds really well. He's very cool. He's not... St- stressed by combat at all he doesn't seem to betray any nerves he's he's matter of factual really he he's very observant and very analytical and eager to accept responsibility i did you not feel that at times he's always he's almost poking his nose in to advise broadwood telling people always got an opinion of what should be happened or happening and and i think it's you know, it's a good grounding for any young officer, but it sets Haig on a path which, you know, some of the traits he developed during the Sud- Sudanese campaign, he keeps for the rest of his career. And we'll be following up. This is the first of a series on Douglas Haig, uh, trying to bring his career to, into into more of a, a view. Uh, and you've got something to say as well, haven't you, about, about his position as a young officer and, and this generation. Yeah, I, I think it, I, I found a... a a quote that uh, uh, Edmonds made about the class of 96 when they were at the Staff College, which I found really interesting. So Edmonds... Are you going to do it in the same voice? No. So the class of 96 was exceptional. You you must remember it consisted of people like Allenby, Edmonds himself, Thompson, Kappa and, of course, Haig. And Edmonds later described the class in this way. Of the 31, four two generals, were killed in action or died of wounds. Of the remainder, two cavalrymen, that's Haig and Allenby, became field marshals and peers. Fifteen became generals, of whom eight were knighted. One, the youngest, got no further than a colonel. Three retired for reasons of health before 1914. One resigned as he'd come into a fortune. And one, the bravest of the brave shot himself, his mother-in-law and her lawyer in un drama passionnel. 
So quite an interesting staff college class, the class of 96. I've never shot my mother-in-law, but I'm not the bravest of the brave, am I? <laughs> we'll draw a veil over that. Well, um, there'll be... Well, well, in a, four or five weeks, we'll be doing one on uh, Haig's Boer War adventures. Oh, adventures is the wrong word, but that's what it's going to be. Uh, well, thank you, Gary. I've really enjoyed that. You are lovely. And you are... Your, your Douglas Haig accent, which seemed to be... So East London, North East London again. He's from Edinburgh, he's English. <laughs> Good. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?